Support for Warm Regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Do well and do good. Hello and welcome to Warm Regards, a conversation between scientists, journalists, newsmakers, and folks on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. It's Thanksgiving week here in the U.S., which is one of my personal favorite holidays because on so many levels, it's really just straightforward. It's all about the food and the people eating it. So maybe you're traveling to be with loved ones or you're dreading the conversations with your climate-denying Uncle Bob. And as a side note, I wonder why it's always like your uncle that's the climate denier, right? It's always crazy Uncle Bob. Uh, Maybe you're planning your first big meal or researching what your vegan gluten-free kids can eat. And of course, the turkey is the main centerpiece of this holiday. Do you get the 39 cents a pound factory farm-raised mega beast? Or maybe you're opting for the free-range organic turkey that's been serenaded with classical music. Or maybe you're opting for a log of tofu or my personal new go-to vegetarian favorite, a pumpkin stuffed with everything good. Like it or not, because it's about food and family, Thanksgiving comes with a lot of baggage, especially for those of us who are struggling with how to balance our personal choices with our political ones. Or maybe we're just holding on to some comforting family traditions as a way to escape the turmoil in our everyday lives. No matter how you slice it, pun intended, food is complicated, and our choices are influenced by our politics, our economic privilege, our culture, our religion, our ethics, For those of us who try to be conscious consumers, it can be really hard to parse the various options out there when it comes to eating and sustainability. And some of the biggest environmental impacts of our diets may have nothing to do with whether we eat locally or go vegan. Our guest this week is here to help us parse this all out. Tori Ligon researches food waste at the University of Arizona, where she's also a program manager at the Take Charge America Institute. Tori, thank you so much for joining us during this holiday week. Thanks so much for having me, Jacqueline. I'm excited to uh, talk about food waste. So this theme of food waste, it might not be really fair to start this conversation around a feast because for many people, Thanksgiving is all about the leftovers. So our goal is really to make much more than anyone could possibly eat in a meal. So maybe we're setting ourselves up to fail here with this conversation. Um, But uh, um, so just to start in, you, you research food waste, but you're not out there in dumpsters weighing garbage. What, what exactly is the nature of your work? Uh, Well, so food waste is an interesting subject to research because uh, it's pretty tricky to figure out exactly what people are throwing away. And so there are people out there in dumpsters weighing garbage, but um, that, as you might imagine, is both a costly and quite messy proposition. And so Uh, I'm grateful for those people out there doing it, but even once we have numbers associated with how much food people are throwing away, it still doesn't address the question of why that food is being thrown away in the first place. And so my research really looks more at the why. Um, What is it about the way that we shop for, prepare, and consume food Uh, in the United States in particular, that is leading us to throw away the food that we throw away. Okay, so you've got three themes there, shopping, preparing, and consuming. Mm -hmm. Um, Where are you finding some of the biggest issues? Well, um, I'll tell you. So a lot of the the advice out there about how to reduce food waste tends to focus on the the preparation side um, and sometimes the consuming side, like, you know, here's how to make sure that you're preparing the right amount of food for the people you're feeding. If you have leftovers, here's how you can handle those leftovers in a safe way by freezing or otherwise managing them. But the fact of the matter is that food waste ultimately is the result of having too much food. Right. Because uh, Mm. if you if you prepare too much food, 
you end up with leftovers. If you buy too much food, you end up with food in your fridge that goes bad. And so in my research, what became clear to me, and I didn't go in with this assumption to begin with, actually, I, I went in with the same assumption that a lot of people have, which is that if we can just learn how to how to prepare our food better um, and handle our leftovers in a more organized fashion that we could reduce food waste. But what I found in my research is that it's actually the shopping that is gonna be the most impactful uh, in reducing that waste. Because I don't care how organized you are about your leftovers, if it's a perishable item, there's a time frame that it has to be eaten. And so, you need to you need to have a reasonable amount that you actually can consume it. Okay, so that's interesting because it sounds like a lot of this problem starts way before the food uh, even gets to the plate. And we tend to have a lot of conversations about food production and the way the food is grown um, or you know the way the livestock are raised. But that the shopping angle is not something that I hear a lot about, except um, common advice that I get as someone who cares about this is that, you know, maybe buying in bulk is a solution to these problems. But it sounds like from your research, I was digging around a bit, that buying in bulk may not be the magic bullet to solve this food waste issue. Can you talk about that? Yeah, in fact, that's kind of the punchline that that I've kind of come to as a result of my research is that um, buying in bulk can be exactly the wrong strategy in many cases. Um, so uh, when I think about um, food shopping, and I, I should tell you that I actually come to academia with a background working in the natural food industry. And so I uh, previously worked in marketing and education, and I would talk to consumers all the time. And as somebody who cared about climate change and sustainable food systems, I found myself digging into these conversations about how our food was grown and how animals were treated, um, and even questions about the, the footprint of food based on how far it had traveled, you know, local versus um, regional versus nationally or internationally produced goods. And what originally got me interested in, in the research on food waste is that uh, I, I stumbled upon this statistic that 40% of our food in this country ends up in landfills. And I had this kind of aha moment that, you know, on some level, it doesn't even matter how we're growing the food or how far it's traveling to us if we're throwing away almost half of that food. You know, there's this low-hanging fruit here, which is addressing waste and inefficiency that's going to make such a difference uh, compared to kind of getting into the weeds about whether, you know, organic versus biodynamic versus, you know, whatever other farming system is best or whether, you know, 100 miles is the right radius to draw around local food. You know, all of these questions that people who care about food sometimes talk a lot about. And not to say those aren't important questions, but there's this much more gigantic question of, you know, why are we throwing away so much food? And one of the problems that I have, have, I guess, sort of uncovered in my own studying of this problem is that our, our lifestyle today pushes us toward bulk shopping. And bulk shopping means that we almost inherently buy more than we need. And if you buy more than you need, you will end up with waste. It's, it's sort of a truism in, in terms of the way the universe works. If you have more than you can possibly use, some of it will be waste. So, so when you talk about bulk shopping, um, so and it's interesting too, because I worked in an organic food co-op when I was in college too. So when I, when I hear bulk shopping, I think of going into say the bulk section of your local co-op or Whole Foods or something where you can dig into the bins of oats and weigh them yourself and print out little stickers. Mm. Um, but then there's another sort of angle on bulk shopping, which is, um, you know, you know, growing up in rural Vermont, you know, we'd have the, the Schwann man come, you know, with his little truck and we'd get like massive crates of 
frozen uh, dinners or we'd go to Sam's Club and buy cases of corn or something like that instead of, you know, just what we needed for the week. And um, so when, when you talk about bulk shopping, what are you envisioning? Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. Bulk is used in multiple different ways. Um, and so what I am talking about when I'm talking about bulk shopping is um, because I think all of the scenarios you described um, in your own shopping are, are sort of uh, maybe niche food systems that the, the majority of Americans aren't necessarily encountering. Uh, and so when I'm talking about bulk shopping, I'm talking about the, the mainstream American shopper who goes to a Safeway or even a Costco and has the option to buy a package of three for the price of two. Uh, or five heads of lettuce at Costco that are cheaper than three heads at Safeway would have been. So we have, um, in the United States, we are very price sensitive about food. Um, it's kind of interesting because uh, compared to international uh, places, other countries around the world, and compared to other points in time in American history, we actually pay a smaller percentage of our income for food than we did at other times and than other people do. But American shoppers care a lot about value when it comes to, to food shopping. And um, one of the things that I, I found in my research is that um, the the price point that people are paying is it's a very salient number. So people tend to have a sense about, especially the the common things they buy, they tend to have a sense about what is a good deal on that item. And people are really swayed by a good deal. And what they what they don't factor in at all is the value of the food that gets thrown out on the other end. And so you you end up with kind of an unfair comparison because you're really paying attention to the front end cost without any back end calculation to know what you actually used of that item and whether it was truly a good deal. And so that's why you get some really astonishing figures that um, uh, the, the numbers range depending on what source you're looking at, but for the average American family, $1,200 to $1,500 a year out the door in, in potentially edible food that they throw away. So, you know, that, that's a gigantic uh, number that would make a big difference to a lot of American families, but they're not accounting for that number. They're only focusing on the front end, how much did I pay in the grocery store for this item? And when something's a deal, it's a much more enticing purchase. So I might be paying for like five heads of lettuce for the price of three. But if I throw three of those heads of lettuce away because they go bad before I can eat them, I'm really paying for five heads of lettuce, but getting two or so, you know, it's like exactly. you're, you're not incorporating that loss there. Wow. Exactly. And that's part of why bulk shopping, um, bulk in the way that, that many Americans are doing it, where they're going to warehouse um, stores like Costco and Sam's Club or, or just buying in large quantities at their grocery store. That's where um, the math often doesn't actually work out. So there's a lot of advice for shopping on a, you know, food, food um, or budget savvy food shoppers are encouraged to look for deals and buy in bulk. Um, now that is a good proposition if it's something that your family eats a lot of that you're not going to throw away. So for instance, my family, um, we never throw away milk. Yeah. My kids drink a lot of milk. So buying milk in a gallon is not a bad decision for my family because there's a cost efficiency in buying it by the gallon versus by the quart. But if it was a product I drank, you know, if we used less milk and we were sometimes throwing away portions of that gallon, then all of a sudden the savings in buying by the gallon goes away, right? Yeah. Because you've lost that money. But, um, and milk is kind of an easy, obvious one for people because uh, you 
pour out the old milk in the sink and, and milk is something that people tend to use a lot. But there's a lot of food products that are less obvious to us um, or that we're more accepting of throwing away. And so one of them is leftovers, right? So if yeah. you over-prepare a meal um, and then you throw away the leftovers, that may be less salient than like dumping half a gallon of milk in the sink. If you end up having dated canned goods that go bad, that may be less salient because, again, part of the question here is time. So when you throw away a half a gallon of milk that you bought a week earlier, you have still kind of fresh in your mind that you paid that money for that milk. When you throw away canned goods that you find in your pantry that may have dated two years ago that you might have bought five years ago, you no longer have that connection, right? That, oh, this cost me $2 for this can, so I'm wasting that money. It's, it's removed enough that it becomes a less salient cost, right? And that's, yeah, that's interesting too, because I would think that, um, like thinking back to my own childhood, the canned goods seemed like the safe thing to overbuy because they won't go bad. But then of course they do, right? They just sit there in the back of the pantry because there's only so much creamed corn you can eat in a year. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then, you know, a lot of that ends up, you know, getting donated to food pantries. I have, I have friends who, who volunteer at uh, shelters and they say that they just get tons and tons of expired food that they, they then have to throw away. So it's almost like we're, yep. we're like an extra level of, of not being aware of what we're wasting because yep. we just think, oh, we'll just donate it or something. Yeah. That actually brings up a really interesting component of this, of this topic. And that is that, um, so, so yes, you're right. Canned goods, they have a much longer shelf life. So they're wasted less than perishable goods, but they are still wasted in vast quantities. And it's exactly what you said, you know, oh, I go through diced tomatoes. So I'm at Costco. Why don't I buy a crate of diced tomatoes, you know, a 12 pack? And, and sometimes, you know, your taste change, the recipe you've been making with diced tomatoes, you quit making it. All of a sudden you have like cans of leftover diced tomatoes. And so that's where it does get fascinating because people do donate those goods. And that actually... Uh, further reduces the saliency of the waste because um, people have this fascinating aversion to waste. Uh, when, when I went into this, this um, my research initially on this topic, I had this, um, this assumption or this, um, I, I believed that maybe I was more concerned about food waste than the average person because I felt really kind of disgusted when I heard that 40% of, of the food that we're growing gets thrown away. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm just like kind of especially attuned to this issue. And, and, and I felt like I didn't waste very much food. And so maybe, you know, all these other people just don't care about this. And so they're just throwing away perfectly good food. And what I have, uh, I laugh at myself all the time now, because what I have found is that with very few exceptions, almost everybody cares about food waste. It is something we are naturally averse to because, um, first of all, there's all this moralizing that goes on in our culture and in many cultures around the world that it is wrong to throw away good food that someone else could eat. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and, I think we all grew up being told that someone was starving somewhere, so you better clean your plate. Exactly. And not only that, um, there is, uh, and this is speculative, I, I don't know, um, I don't know the, the research on this, but there, I wonder if there might even be some sort of like biological uh, urge to not throw away edible food, right? Um, since in previous eras in, in human evolution, food was, was so precious and even scarce. I don't know if you know anything about, about the likelihood of that, um, that thought, but that's something I've, I've thought of in the past, that there, there may be even something almost innate in us that, that really dislikes throwing away good food. Oh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I follow um, a lot of the literature on obesity, for example, um, as a fat person. And so I, um, yeah, this often comes up as, as a, a sort of a psychological explanation for overeating. And, mm -hmm. and who knows whether that's just sort of pop evolutionary psychology. But I can, I mean, I see it even in myself, at, when I try to do portion control, 
um, you know, in sort of mindful eating and, you know, eating until I'm comfortable, that almost always involves leaving food on the plate, Mm. unless you sort of downsize your plate. And so I just pass the plate to my husband. And then suddenly I feel free to not eat that food, because he's eating it. And so it's okay, like, as opposed to dumping it in the trash. And it's like, you know, there's this little truism, like, oh, it'll go to waste as in, you know, W-A-S-T-E or go to waste, W-A-I-S-T-E, mm-hmm. like to try mm-hmm. to moralize overeating, right. you know, or right. basically say like, don't, you know, don't eat it because it'll go on your, it'll become fat, which is bad and we don't want that. So just throw it in the trash. So right. yeah, th- these conversations for me are intersecting in some interesting and personal ways. Yeah. So, th- so that's, that's, that's definitely a common experience people have is that they don't want to throw it in the trash and therefore if they can find someone else to eat it they are relieved of that moral burden just like you described with your husband I heard so many people talk about things like that like they'd bring home leftovers from a restaurant knowing full well that they themselves had no desire to eat it and people, that's me I, I have this great quote from a woman once who said well, I guess I brought it home with the hopes that someone, and I suppose if I'm honest, that someone would have to be my husband, would eat it, but he didn't want it either. And so this is my life. People, and so the same thing is true, though, coming back to our earlier conversation about the, the food pantries. If you can donate that food, the guilt is lifted off your shoulders. Even if in the back of your mind, you kind of know that the food bank is throwing it away because it's expired anyway, but still Mm -hmm. there's that, um, it's them throwing it away. It's not you. So it's no longer on your shoulders to throw away that food because the food pantry is the one that made that decision to throw it away. Right. And it's like me putting things that I know the recycling company will not take. I put them in anyway. Right. (laughs) Where it's like, I can't like this number, this like, you know, the plastics are numbered. I'm like, well, I can't put number six plastic in, but I still do it because I just can't. (laughs) bring myself to throw it exactly that's exactly it so we're lying to ourselves (laughs) we lie to ourselves all the time because again what i discovered is that food waste is a is a kind of uniformly aversive topic people hate throwing away food and so this is where i laugh at myself because almost everybody i have talked to and I've talked to a lot of people about this. Almost everybody I've talked to has said some version of, well, I think I just care more about food waste than your average person because I throw away almost nothing. But I see my neighbors, my family members, my friends, they are throwing away a lot of food, but I I generally don't. And and that was exactly how I was when I came into this, that I felt like I had this you know specialness about me that I cared more about this than other people. Nope. It turns out we all care about this topic, and yet it is a really challenging problem to solve. And so we all go to great lengths to um, to con- to to convince ourselves that we are not part of the problem. And so, so that. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that is the donating of the food to the food bank. It is the foisting of your leftovers off on other members of your family uh, and and other ways that we kind of hide the way we waste. So and just one more kind of funny anecdote that comes up a lot is that people talk about how they can't possibly throw good food in the trash. And so what they do is they put food they know they don't want back in their refrigerator because they can't throw it away until it's molded, right? And this isn't even always like a conscious decision. It's that you put the food back in the fridge uh, and then at some point down the line, it is going to be growing green fuzz. And at that point, you no longer, again, have the guilt of throwing away edible food because it's gone bad. So you're acting in the best interest of your family now by throwing away this moldy food that could make someone sick. So we kind of shift that um, the guilt of throwing away food into this sense of, you know, well, it was inevitable at that point, right? I had to throw it away. It hadn't, it had green fuzz growing on it. It's become poison. (laughs) Right. Support for warm regards and the following message come from Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital's online investment platform allows you to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S., Earn up to 8.5% annually while also diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. With Wonder's help, individual investors like you financed more than 50 large-scale solar projects in 2017, 
which will offset the CO2 emissions from 14.2 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more about the solar projects Wonder Capital is helping to finance and the impact of their investments, create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. So I have, you know, as someone who tries to be a conscious consumer, I have also tried to change my own behavior around food as I've started to learn more about these issues around food waste. And there, there have been a couple of things I've tried. And one of them was uh, I, I tried a food subscription service where they send you prepared meals in a box a few times a week and you get tiny little bottles of vinegar and everything is perfectly portioned. And I had some serious issues with this and, and big questions because, you know, now like I have the whole thing was sold to me is this idea where I, you know, you have smaller portions, you're not wasting during the preparation stage. But then there was like all this other material that now I was being sent. I had boxes full of these freezer packs that I was just holding on to. So um, in the end, I decided personally to stop my subscription service. But I, I still see people going to these as a way to avoid food waste. And I would, I would love to hear what you think about this. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> this is a really tricky question. And, um, and, and a lot of the, the, the conversation around food waste does kind of hold up these more on-demand food services as, as a good solution for the future. So the, the meal boxes and online grocery delivery services, things like that. And in, in, in some ways they are beneficial for, uh, reducing food waste because, like you said, it's the perfectly proportioned amount, so you're not going to have a bunch of, of stuff that goes bad. But uh, you absolutely point out the, the the problem here, and that is that you know we have to weigh the extra packaging for one thing, as well as the the environmental costs of shipping. And at this point, I think the the jury probably. If you really want to, I, and I personally have to say I have not done this analysis, but um, for people that have done this analysis, I'm guessing that at this point, the the impact of that food waste may be less significant than the impact of all that extra packaging and delivery. Um, so I think that mm -hmm. more things will have to change in the future to make this system really work, uh, in particular more fuel efficient delivery systems. So moving to electric vehicles and, and other uh, less impactful delivery, and then also some sort of better packaging. You know, there's a lot of interesting new research on edible packaging. So the, the plastic wraps that are made out of, you know, cornstarch derivatives and, and algae and other things. And again, that's kind of outside of my research purview, but there is some interesting stuff happening right now on that, on that, in that area, which I think could make a huge difference down the line. Because the one thing I will say about the, the, the delivery boxes is that if you could address the packaging and the delivery service, then then you probably do get some valuable efficiency. So uh, one thing that sometimes people point out is that, well, they sent me a half a stick of butter, but what about the other half? Well, hopefully they sent that to somebody else. And, um, and then when you talk about the produce mm -hmm. trimmings, hopefully those companies who are preparing the, the ingredients, um, they are disposing of those trimmings in most likely a more environmentally friendly way than the average household, because they're probably either sending them to um, an animal feed uh, lot of some sort or composting. And the reality for the vast majority of American households is that they're not. They are putting their food waste in the trash. And then that yeah. food, that organic material is going to um, to landfills. And that's the worst possible scenario for, for our food. 
um, because that's where you get the, the production of methane gas and other um, really harmful climate, uh, climate change impacting gases. So then, you know, th- thinking then about some of these other choices that we make, um, you know, we're, we're often thinking about budgets, not, not just financial budgets, but also time budgets. And, you know, for, for a lot of my friends who have tried, you know, meal subscriptions or some of these other techniques, it's often, or, you know, meal planning, which is something we try to do in, in my house. Um, it's, it's both a matter of, of our, the, the actual money that we're spending, but also our, our time. And, you know, coming from a, a working class background, um, you know, I think a lot about the the costs of these kinds of of um, practices, but also the the many ways in which we're trying to balance and weigh these different choices. So, you know, you may care about the environment, but you have you don't have enough time to grow your own food in your own backyard, or you you know may be making choices because you may be buying the thirty nine cent a pound turkey because that's what you can afford, and um, the option the other option is no turkey, and that's not an option. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, could you talk a little bit about what do you see Americans really struggling with in terms of the the costs of and the, and the the benefits of these different strategies around food? Yeah, this this is these are great questions because I think um, you know ultimately why do we have more food waste today than we did 50 years ago in this country? It's because today many families have dual income earning people in them and time is scarce. And so you no longer have mm-hmm. an individual who in in decades past would most likely have been a woman whose primary function was household management, which included developing substantial expertise on how to plan menus, how to shop efficiently, how to cook in a way that um, maximized value in terms of, you know, both cooking in larger quantities and also utilizing ingredients that were maybe more affordable because they were particular uh, cuts of meat or or, uh, in season, things that really made the food more affordable. So today, fewer and fewer households have somebody who has the, the, the expertise and the focus to dedicate themselves to that household management, which is truly a, a skill, right? I mean, you don't just know how to plan a, a family menu. You have to learn that. You don't know how to cook. You have to learn that. You don't know how to cook in ways that maximize uh, value by being able to use whatever's in season, whatever you have in the fridge. These are all skills that people have to learn, um, and they require time. And so, in today's uh, environment, one of the things we see is that families are so time strapped that not only do they not have time to devote to um, really putting energy toward effective planning and shopping. But the other thing that, that you see, which which further complicates this, is that you actually no longer always have one individual who's in charge of it all. Oh, right. So again, like decades ago, it was probably a woman who did it all, right? She was in charge of everything related to food, the shopping, possibly even the gardening, uh, but certainly the cooking and even the cleanup. So she, she was an expert because she knew the whole process from start to finish. She saw, uh, you know, how much food did she need to buy to feed the family because she saw how much was left over and she was the one who cleaned the kitchen after the meal. Today's families, you have a lot more sharing of work, which for many reasons is a really good thing. But what it means is that not only do people not have as much expertise in any one area, they often don't have as much um, uh, authority, right? So there's there's one person doing some shopping, and then somebody else is doing shopping a different day of the week, and then you know maybe you're splitting off who's cooking. Maybe one person is cleaning, and that's a different person than cooked. And so 
what that does is it means that nobody really has a good sense of what's really going on in the kitchen. And so you kind of default back to convenient systems that, that work as well as possible. Um, and so, you know, that can mean buying more convenience foods, which are not always budget friendly. Uh, and it can mean eating out more frequently, which again is not necessarily budget friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's important to understand, I guess, that for, for a lot of families, it is in fact the time crunch more than the budget crunch that is really leading to the food choices that they're making. So given all those constraints, then if let's say you're someone like me or many of our listeners who want to make better choices with these constraints, um, you know, what can individuals do? What are our what are our best options? What's sort of a, a low hanging fruit in terms of a way that we can really reduce our food waste uh, without having to become one of these domestic experts? And I love that you framed it in that way. Um, so so what can we do? Well, that's a really good question, and and it is a tricky one. So, I think you mean that, it's not um, like a simple <laughs> silver bullet answer. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's not. Uh, there are some things that have been shown to make a difference in terms of reducing our food waste. So, one is planning. So, having a menu that you sketch out at the beginning of the week really does make a difference. Um, one of the reasons it can make a difference is that you can then be intentional about utilizing ingredients in more than one place. So maybe you buy a set of ingredients for one meal and you then know that the leftovers from that meal can go to another meal later on in the week. Um, so planning is probably one of the, the most effective strategies, but uh, planning is not something that works for everybody. Not everybody is a planner. Some personality traits are more prone to, to planning than others. So if you're not somebody that enjoys planning or even has that capability perhaps in your life, like maybe it's just not possible to plan, then another strategy that is effective, and this depends a little bit on where you live and how convenient the grocery store is for you. But another strategy is to shop more often. Hmm. It sounds a little counterintuitive because, um, you know, you think, well, I, the reason I'm shopping infrequently is because I'm saving time. But shopping for a big shopping trip, like let's say you go to the grocery store, your intention is to go to the grocery store once a week. So um, shopping once a week requires a lot of forethought because you need to think through like, what all am I actually going to need for the whole week? And it's really hard actually to, to plan for what you might want uh, over the whole course of the week. You need to really think through that. So um, the, the alternative is that if you go to the store more frequently, you can spend less time at the store and less time ahead of that thinking through what you're going to buy. Because if you're just buying food for tonight or tomorrow night, it's easier to, um, we call it affective forecasting. So it's easier to forecast what you're going to feel like eating tonight and tomorrow night um, mm. compared to like five or six nights in the future. You're more likely to get it right if you're thinking in a short-term time frame because you know what your schedule demands are for today and maybe tomorrow and you know how you're feeling and you maybe know what you ate last night. So you have a better sense of like, what am I going to feel like eating tonight? So it's just a less mentally taxing um, activity to shop for a shorter time frame and to buy less things. And, and while it may cost a little more upfront because you're not going to take advantage of all of those bulk discounts that we talked about at the beginning of the show, like, you know, buying five heads of lettuce at once. If you, if you can consciously factor in the value of the waste, you may find that from a, a financial perspective, you're not actually worse off, right? Because if you're not throwing away as much, because you're more, you're more accurately predicting what you're really going to eat tonight and tomorrow night, then even if you pay a little more upfront because you're buying in smaller quantities, in the end, you may be better off financially. 
This makes me feel <laughs> kind of comforted because we do try to meal plan in my family and sometimes we're really successful, but sometimes that week's planning fails because you know, you need to eat the chicken sooner in the week rather than later so it doesn't go bad. Or there's that one thing that you thought you'd want to eat when you made your meal plan because it looked interesting, but you just, when faced with it and on any given night, you're just like, that's too much work or I'm not in the mood for that. And then in the end of the week, you have this thing you didn't make and it's probably going bad by that point. So there's always, there's often these things that kind of undermine that that meal planning. Um, not all the time, but sometimes. So it's, it's, it's nice to know that I'm not unusual in my struggles with with trying to eat in my and plan in my household so I kind of appreciate hearing that yeah it's absolutely normal there's a really great study that was done actually here at the University of Arizona um, a team of archaeologists went out and actually dug through people's trash and did interviews talking to them about what they were eating and um, in some cases talked to them about their shopping and what they found is that um, a lot of people are aspirational eaters, right? So you go to the grocery store and you know that you should eat salad and vegetables and you want to be healthy. And so you put those things in your cart, but you have a really busy, hectic life. And when you get home from work, on Tuesday, you don't feel like making vegetables and salad. It's a lot easier. Maybe you feel more hungry for frozen pizza. And so you're going to eat that frozen pizza. And like day after day after day, people have this experience where they eventually want to eat that healthy vegetable. But right now they feel like eating the more comfort food, the easier food, you know, the thing that's not as involved to prepare. And before you know it, that vegetable's gone bad because it's perishable and it has a short shelf life. Um, so there's, there's, tons of people who do that uh and and it's it's really it's a normal pattern basically so that's again where that like that shorter term horizon can sometimes be helpful because you may know today that you've have a really busy day and by tonight you're not going to feel like cooking an elaborate vegetable stir fry and so tonight is a better night to get you know a dozen eggs and make scrambled eggs uh, and so uh, you you have that sense, that sensibility about what your day today really looks like. So when you talk about your research to others, do you get resistance or pushback to this or people's eyes open? I mean, for me, what you say makes perfect sense because I really see, I see myself in what you're talking about. It's really easy, but I wonder... Um, you know, maybe, maybe I am special and I care about this stuff more than, you know, than average, although you, you've, you've said that that's not the case. But yeah, are, are people sort of pushing back like, no, it's not about the shopping. It's, you know, it's about the organic, you know, growing or it's, it's something else. Right. No, I really don't hear any pushback. Most people recognize themselves because we actually have very predictable patterns in the way that we approach food and we all have have uh, many of us have similar challenges in in terms of our psychology like affective forecasting is is kind of a known uh challenge for people in when it comes to food because you you know there have been lots of interesting experimental studies that people are really good at at knowing how they're going to feel in an hour but if you ask me how hungry i'm going to be next Thursday night, not tomorrow, but next Thursday, that's, I don't know, how would I know that, you know, how will I know what I'm going to feel like eating? So we have, we have kind of predictable patterns in the way that, that we think about food. So I say, I would say I get almost no pushback, but the challenging part here is that, is that I'm not giving you an easy solution, right? I mean, it's, it's the, this problem is wrapped up in the way our modern lives are designed, in the way that our modern retail uh, marketplaces are designed. You know, I mean, back back in other times and still today in many other countries, people have a food environment that is conducive to daily shopping because they have a market that's down the street or in their neighborhood. And so, you know, walking to the market on the way home from work might be a very reasonable thing to do. And you may just have a pattern of picking up 
tonight's dinner every single day. But in the United States, that is very much not our retail marketplace anymore, right? We have gigantic mega supermarkets and big box stores that cater to month-long buying sprees. And so- And people who um, coupon as a hobby. And people who (laughs) coupon, absolutely, yeah. And people who, um, and, and not only that, you know, we have, this is another really- interesting component of this that we haven't even gotten to talk about yet. People have really specific shopping patterns. So they have this tendency, um, you know, it's it's not like you, and, and I would um, ask you if this is true for you. Most people don't buy everything at any store they go to. They have particular things they buy at particular stores. So they may buy their meat yep. at Costco and their dairy products at, you know, their local natural food store, or they and they may buy their canned goods at Target or Walmart, and they may buy produce at, you know, the this other market that's nearby that has a really good produce section. The average American shops at between four and seven grocery stores on a regular basis. Wow. And so what that means is that you know, when, when you go to the grocery store, you're not actually shopping for everything. You're shopping for the things that you buy at that store. Mm-hmm. And so you have a tendency to stock up on those particular things because who has time to go to seven stores every single week? Right. Right. So you're by kind of nature, the nature of that shopping pattern means that you're not really shopping for a week. You're probably shopping for like the next couple weeks oh, yeah. at that store. My nearest Trader Joe's is like two hours away. So we go, we have like sprees there. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. So that's exactly a perfect example where our palettes, if you will, are, have gotten very refined. We like particular products from particular stores. We are no longer content to buy white bread at the local supermarket that is down the block from our house. We want a particular brand and we want it to be, you know, this particular, you know, health qualities about it. Uh, So we are willing to go way out of our way to go get it at a particular place. But again, that, that pattern, um, it's, it's a natural adaptive tendency then to overbuy when you're there. Because can you imagine driving two hours to Trader Joe's and getting home and realizing you didn't get enough of something? Yeah, exactly. Or you forgot something, you know? I mean, it's a much more painful realization to not have gotten enough than to realize at the end of the month that, you know, we didn't get through quite as much bread as I thought we were going to, so I'm going to have to throw this away. Especially given that food is fairly cheap in our culture, I mean, in America today, uh, it it is actually less painful to overbuy than to underbuy. Except when you talk specifically about food waste, and then that is uncomfortable. But because we do a really good job of kind of averting our eyes and not noticing the ways that we ourselves waste, uh, we pay much more attention to the inconvenience of not having something that we need. Uh, and we, we are much more likely to buy a lot at every store. Whereas, you know, another in another place where you had a small market in your neighborhood and you just buy on a daily basis what you need for dinner, you just probably buy what they have. You know, you don't necessarily get to pick your most perfect brand of bread. Oh yeah. You just buy what they carry. Yeah. It's, I see that too. When I do, when I do my weekly meal planning, that involves at least three stores and maybe, you know, a farmer's market or something. But if we are not meal planning and we just buy night to night, I'm not going to go to five places for tonight's dinner. I just go to one. Um, So that, yeah, that makes total sense. Well, yep. so um, we're we're approaching the end of the show here, but I have to ask because of the holiday, um, kind of on a to end on a fun note. Um, what do you what do you do for Thanksgiving? What's your what is your meal going to look like? Um, actually, this year we are hosting Thanksgiving for about twenty people, wow. um, which is the biggest Thanksgiving that we've ever hosted, and um, I'm I'm excited because. The, the people that we have Thanksgiving with, um, I think we have a really nice uh, sharing of the work that we've developed over the years. And so mm. everybody contributes. So uh, we are only making three things and everybody is bringing. And then the other thing that we do, which I think is probably the best thing to do, is uh, everybody is bringing containers with them. Awesome. And I have a big bag, a big stash of Ziploc bags in case people forget, because, uh, you know, there there are definitely statistics that are 
being put out right now. You'll see um, articles this week about how much food people waste on Thanksgiving, and it's true. But as long as you as long as you can kind of distribute those leftovers, then you're a lot less likely to have too many. Like I can't think of in the past years in my family ever throwing away turkey or Thanksgiving meals because we only take, you know, a portion of the leftovers and and everybody else in the group does too. So that's for us the secret, but, but we, we have Thanksgiving with people who all live locally. So that's a little more challenging if you have a lot of people traveling from, from far away and, and Thanksgiving, you know, is a great example of where our competing values come out with food wastage being kind of the lesser value. And what I mean by that is that um, most hosts would much rather throw away a bunch of food on the other end of Thanksgiving than find themselves short of an important dish at that meal. And as long as you have that dynamic, we're going to have food waste on Thanksgiving because um, that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. I know we certainly overbought on turkey because I don't want Mm -hmm. to not have enough. And, and so then really the compensation strategy has to be a real plan for how you're going to effectively deal with those leftovers by hopefully distributing them out to other people and then freezing and, and dealing with, with, with leftovers that you have in a way that you can preserve them. Um, which gets into a whole nother question about how people manage inventory, but it sounds like we don't have time for that today. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back on again, and I'll I'll continue with uh with with my personal strategy of uh, making sure anything that's left on my plate ends up uh, on my on my husband's. <laughs> the day of the day. Um, there you go. It's been a good sport so far. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, that's our show for this week, and I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, certainly um, Tori has given us so much to think about. And I hope that all of you have a wonderful holiday in whatever way that you celebrate it, um, whatever is on your plate, whatever you leave on your plate, um, and whatever your strategies are for dealing with that. So uh, we are very grateful and thankful for you here at Warm Regards, our listeners. And if you, our listeners, are grateful for us, uh, please follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. Subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And if you have a moment, leave us a review because we really appreciate that. Um, It also helps boost our listenership, get us out there, share us with your friends, um, maybe maybe play the podcast on on your drive home. Uh, after Thanksgiving dinner, uh, introduce us to some new folks. Um, we're always looking for for new listeners. We always love to hear from you as well. So if there's something that you would like us to talk about on the show, or if you have an idea for a guest, or maybe you'd like to come on, uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook or on Gmail at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. For my co-hosts, Andy and Eric, and our producers, Eric and Jesse Ann, I'm Jacqueline Gill. Thank you so much for listening and have a happy holiday. We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of Warm Regards. Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. Earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good.